Hey folks, you're listening to the Wait Would Have Podcast, and I'm your host, Kevin Sullivan. I'm about to lose my voice. It comes along with the job, for all those who don't realize that I see patients eight hours a day or nine hours a day, five days a week, and uh, I get sick all the time. You would think that every time someone coughs or hacks on me, that I would build up an immune system, but I don't, because these damn viruses, they mutate, and then they get, (laughs) this is kind of gross, I have a beard, so I'm pretty sure that the viruses get stuck in my beard, and then at night I just suck them down into my lungs, and then I turn into this horrible-sounding, mucusy, coughing person. But... I digress. I opened the show with Freddie Mercury's intro to Hammer to Fall. That was from back in 1986 at Live Aid. If you hadn't watched that ever, then watch it right now. Actually, no, I was going to say stop the podcast and watch it, but then I'm, I'm driving away my my audience if I do that. After you listen to this wonderful podcast, uh, look it up. Just look up Freddie Mercury Live Aid and watch it. Every time I watch it, I get goosebumps. The reason why I bring that up is because it's art, right? Eddie, uh, Eddie, Freddie Mercury was one of the greatest rock singers that ever lived. As far as I'm concerned, number one, number two being Chris Cornell from Soundgarden, but I won't get into, this isn't, this isn't a music episode, but it is uh, about AI. And, um, and I don't have an example here in front of me, but AI is starting to dip its fingers or its toes into art and it's doing a pretty good job at it. But I ask, can a non-human create art? Could a non-human do what Freddie Mercury did with that audience at the beginning of this show? Is art only an expression of human experience? I would argue yes, but there are AIs out there already writing, composing, creating, painting, doing all that stuff. And if you look at it, you can't tell the difference between if a human did it or if they didn't. And to be honest, we know where this is going just by looking where it has gone. We started out a few years ago with like bland computer animated cartoons. Um, look, look for Pixar's first uh, animated uh, movie. Then you watch it and you're like, what is this? There's not a lot of color. There's not a lot of detail to it. And then watch the movie Moana, which is probably dated too. And um, I have a little girl. So yes, I've watched Moana dozens of times. But Simply looking at the quality of the images in that movie, they're lifelike. The water looks like water. The trees look like trees. I mean, I know the characters are are cartoony, but the environment, you can't tell that this is a complete environment created from ones and zeros. So if we can expect an exponential growth in technology to continue, where will we be in 50 years, 25 years, even 10 years? Would Ansel Adams wannabes need to traverse dangerous terrain to get that uh, great landscape image Or will AI just be able to create it? Is art simply something that makes you feel? Or is it the experience of the artist? Who knows? But these are the questions we're going to have to ask ourselves very soon. Today's guest is Byron Rees, an entrepreneur, a futurist, a TED Talks alumni, 
and the author of The Fourth Age, which is a great book. Uh, if you like AI and you like futurism, check out The Fourth Age. I'll put a link in the show notes. Um, I get a lot of books from people uh, who are or want to be guests on the show, and um, I usually start reading them, and I, I mean dozens upon dozens of books, and uh, I don't get through too many of them, but his, the second I opened it up, I mean, boom, I made it through the whole thing. Fantastic book, uh, well-written, and a unique perspective on uh, artificial intelligence, so I highly recommend checking it out. Byron is a rare optimist when it comes to advancements in AI, and it's refreshing to hear his take on the coming age of our robot overlords. So without further ado, here's Byron Rees. You're listening to the Wait What If podcast. this is a fantastic book um thank you the fourth age smart robots conscious computers and the future of humanity i read i've read most of the big ai books out there and i've actually had a lot of the authors on the show i had uh james barrett our final invention of course uh i had I had Callum Chase on, uh, The Economic Singularity. And what I found was with uh, James, it and he's been on a few times. I'd like to say he's my friend now. Um, He's very much a pessimist. (laughs) It's It's, true. Yes. It's not not puppy dogs, ice cream, and uh, rainbows at the end. It's it's some frightening. He writes a horror story, basically. And Callum is a little, he's kind of in between. You know, he talks a lot about the economic singularity and how, you know, unless we make some moves, we could be in for a hard time. And then your book is, I would say, 99% optimistic. Yeah. A very, very uh, uplifting book. Well, thank you. I mean, I've often felt that, you know, we're a skittish species in that somebody, I need to look this up because I quoted enough. Somebody said that, it was always better for us to see a rock and think it was a bear and run away. Oh, sure. Yeah. To see a bear and think it was a rock and stay put. So, um, there's been this like strange thing where for the longest time, everything's about to go bad. And then, and then all of a sudden, uh, things get better. And it's been going on like that for 10,000 years. And I don't see any reason to think it's going to be any different in the future. Yeah. Uh, well, I, I mean, I, I I don't find any of that compelling. Honestly, I, I can't not look at, you know, there was a time, I think, 100,000 years ago when we were down to maybe 1,000 mating pairs of humans. We were an endangered that's right. species. That's right. I actually and, talked about that on a recent episode. It was some yeah. estimate we were down to 40 mating pairs. Yeah. And uh, that's like cheetahs now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, and uh, and 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 you know, one 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 thing away from extinction. And somehow we made it through all of that, and along the way, it created civilization and prosperity and human rights and all this other stuff. And so to think somehow that it's all going to change, I think the burden of proof is very much on on people who 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 think that somehow it's going to be different this time. I think where the pessimism comes is that we can look at human traits and human behaviors. We're very good at at knowing that and recognizing that because that's what we are. We've been around for 200,000 years. The idea of AI is almost, and I would say it is, a new species that will, that could uh, out-species us, you know? We could... Well- that's the argument. I mean, that's, you know, Elon says that we got to where we are on this planet by being the smartest thing on it. That's why we're kind of the top dog, even over, you know, the top dogs. Sure. Uh, and, and if we're no longer the smartest thing, we won't, we won't be there. Who was it that was just saying it'll be a kinda, there may be a few zoos that hold humans. I don't believe any of that, frankly. Um, the, the, the interesting idea behind all of that is somehow that these machines actually are intelligent. Um, and I don't think that they are. And, 
you know, I, I wrote a book where I don't necessarily say what I think that because that wasn't, I didn't want to just be like another guy with an opinion telling you should think like I think. Right. What I wanted to do was write a book that said, here's some questions, philosophical questions, and wherever you are on these, that's really going to govern what, how, how the future is going to unfold. You don't need to understand technology to kind of understand where we're going. Right. Um, so that was the book I wrote. But, but candidly, I don't think machines are intelligent. Okay. Um, and there's, you know, the word artificial can mean kind of one of two things. It can mean um, that's artificial because we made it. Or it can be like artificial turf. You know, it's not real grass. It just looks like it. And that's the way I think of artificial intelligence. It's just mimicking intelligence, but it's not really intelligent right? in any, in any sense. We've seen so many movies, and I include you know me in this we, mm -hmm. that we do something called reasoning from fictional evidence. Mm -hmm. Like, you watch enough episodes of Westworld, and, and you watch Black Mirror, and you watch her, and you watch Ex Machina, and all of a sudden you're like, yeah, yeah, that could happen. Yeah. Uh, but but when you when you actually say hold up your smartphone and say does this thing show any signs of volition of will of experience of anything it, it doesn't and it, it it's no more smart than a calculator or a or a jackhammer I mean that's all that's all they are and all a computer can do is like move these ones and zeros around right flip mm -hmm. the switches open and close gates that's it. To somehow say that gets you uh, what we are, I just don't buy. And it's funny how you bring this up because my last question uh, I had prepared was, after we discuss all this, are we talking, and, and I guess we're specifically talking about uh, AGI, and we can get to that a little bit later, but the artificial general, general intelligence, is it an inevit inevitability or is it, could it be just science fiction? It could never happen. Well... I will say this: if it if if it is possible, it is inevitable. Uh, if it is possible, then all the forces of Moore's law and all all this magical thing technology does, where it it kind of builds on itself, mm -hmm. it will happen. It's inevitable. Uh, but is it possible? I you know I have a very minority view on this, if because uh, I host a podcast on AI, and I've had eighty guests on it or ninety or something. And I can count on one hand the ones that say it's not possible. Um, that's like such a minority view. Right. That being said, from my way of looking at things, um, you know, we we have these brains we don't understand. Like we don't know what a thought is. Oh, exactly. And then we have these minds, and and I use that term to mean like all this stuff the brain can do, like. Uh, like your liver doesn't have a sense of humor, your stomach, your stomach doesn't have a sense of humor, but your brain does. And where does that come from? Like mm -hmm. why, why is that organ different? What? And so I call that's what I think of as a mind. And then we have consciousness. We have this feature where we can experience the world. Like that is a scientific fact that we don't know how to even ask scientifically how that happens. Like we don't know what an answer would look like scientifically. How how can mere matter have a first-person experience <laughs> of the universe. Why can you feel warmth, right. whereas a computer can only measure temperature? Like, why can you? So you've got these three huge unknowns that may all be required for general intelligence. And to say, oh, we're going to build that, I guarantee it. The only way you can say that, and that's, and, and all of those guests on my show would, would, I think I'll admit this, is that if you begin with the assumption that people are machines, because if you're a machine, your brain is a machine, the mind, whatever it is, is mechanistic, and consciousness, whatever it is, is mechanistic. And there's this reductionist view of science that said, if you just slice that brain up to small enough bits and you clone those in silicon, then all of a sudden you can build something that does what a brain does. Right. If people are machines, then someday you can make a mechanical person. And if you ever can make a mechanical person, then someday you'll make a better one and a better one and a better one and a better one and then then you have all of those scenarios people write about. I I have no problems with steps two through 100 in that uh, logic, but it is unproven to me um, that we are machines. And you don't you don't have to even appeal to any kind of spiritualism or anti-science sentiment to make that case. Um, 
I mean, I could offer you half a dozen reasons, half a dozen views of the universe by which machines cannot achieve human intelligence. For instance, our intelligence may be, I don't know, some kind of a quantum phenomenon. I mean, people have, have, have theorized this. Consciousness is that we're not really able to replicate in a in a fab. Mm-hmm. Uh, we could be, we could be a form of strong emergence that uh, that you can't kind of. You can take water, and it, you know it has this emergent property that it's wet. That means you know because oxygen and hydrogen aren't wet. But you put them together, and you get this thing that has this new property, wetness. And you can look at that, and you can say, oh, I understand why, where it came from. But there's a theory of some kind of emergence called strong emergence, still a very controversial idea, don't get me wrong, uh, that says sometimes you can't work backwards from it. Sometimes you can't take human consciousness and figure out what, what alchemy got that to happen. And that isn't to eschew science. It is merely to say there's a there's a break in the laws of physics as we understand them that can't account for this property. And I find that more compelling that that somehow consciousness is this great mystery to me. This this fact that I experience the world. A rock doesn't. A rock doesn't feel warmth and it doesn't anything a rock is just a rock but i'm made out of the same stuff as that rock and yet i have this other ability and where that comes from it isn't clear to me that we are and that may be critical to intelligence and it isn't clear to me that we can somehow make it i i don't remember who who said this but it was one of the more compelling ideas of consciousness where they said that it was the universe turning around and observing itself yeah, I haven't heard that. And, and I thought I mean, it, it was it. It obviously struck a chord with me because that's always resonated with me. Yeah, I mean, maybe, maybe, maybe the universe is a whole, in totality. It too, you know, you're a trillion, you're trillions of cells mm-hmm. that don't have any idea you exist, and but there's a you that's different than those cells. They live their little lives. You know, they grow up, they get married, they die. Uh, they are oblivious to your existence, and yet you're undeniably you. Mm-hmm. And there's no reason necessarily not to believe that that doesn't scale upwards. The Gaia hypothesis posits maybe that we're all we're all cells in a in, a, in an organism on this planet, and it it has its own consciousness. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's those kinds of things you don't have to believe them, but you just have to maybe have I think a, approach approach these questions with enough humility to not assume that we can do it. I mean, I'm a techno-optimist. Don't get me wrong. I believe that we learned this trick a million years ago. I'm not just throwing that number out. We learned this trick a million years ago, uh, before we were before we were us, uh, of technology, that we, we knew we could figure out ways to multiply what we're able to do. And, and once we could do that, we became um, – we, we 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 sat we sat on a course set out on a course that gave us prosperity you know created language all of these things we made uh, that increased our productivity and and I believe those have the capability of transforming the world mm-hmm. and ending disease and poverty hunger war and all the rest of that but I don't necessarily there I think there is this small drawer of things that are impossible and going back in time may be one of those you know and and. A general intelligence that we manufacture may be one. I do think if we ever, I don't think we'll ever code one. I think if, if a general intelligence is possible, we'll evolve it somehow. Mm-hmm. Uh, it will it will code itself. It will it will emerge as it were. Uh, I always go back to the Fermi paradox when we talk about the existential yeah. threat of of AI because I mean I I heard the stat that for every grain of sand on Earth, there's a hundred Earth-like planets. And if you think about that and then you think about space-time, someone would have had to have come up with this. I mean, anywhere from 10,000, no, we could say a society that's, yeah, even a 1,000 years ahead of us. And, and you're talking about a huge uh, astronomically small coincidence that two societies would be within a 1,000 years of advancement of each other. But it, that's all it would take to have a... a, a 
society with, as we see it, with AGI. And then if that's the case, they should be out there. <laughs> we should, the, isn't the, the last vestiges of, of artificial gener or super intelligence is to uh, uh, go out amongst the universe with uh, nanotechnology and eventually, I don't know, um, populate everything. Yeah, I mean, Carl Sagan postulated something like that, that, that there's this period of time that we, that a society gets the technology to destroy itself, and there's this tiny window where if it has to learn to improve itself fast enough not to destroy itself, and, and then it can enter into this billion-year club where, with other civilizations. I don't have an answer. Yeah. <laughs> to the paradox. I mean, I would, I would say, you know, I don't know. We, we don't have a consensus definition on what life is. Yeah, that's and true. Yeah. I think DNA is a really bizarre thing. And was it Watson or Crick that didn't believe it could evolve? They they said it had to be put here by aliens. Sure. Yeah, actually, um, I just read Who Built the Moon. Um, yeah. <laughs> now, don't judge. Uh, it's a it's a fun book. I had actually never heard. I haven't heard anything about it, so I I picked it up and I said this will be interesting. And um, yeah, they get into a lot of that. They get into the idea that okay, let's say that we put nano machines or whatever you want to call them, nanotechnology, to uh, other parts of the universe to expand life. Uh, what are what are what are nanobots? They're basically molecules that can operate like machinery and they can work together, almost like what you would see in DNA and RNA and what you would see in um, uh, I, the organelles of cells. And that, it, so when I was reading the book, I thought it was great the first half. I was like, this is great that they're, they're exploring all these coincidences with um, astronomical uh, ratios of the moon to the earth and the moon to the sun and all these little things that seem to line up into place. Okay, great. And then in the back of my mind, I said, they're going to go into aliens. I know it's going to be around the corner here. And then halfway through the book, aliens. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, and it's fun. I, I think that's fun. I don't think it's likely. But the more you read into it, um, it does make you think, especially with things like DNA. Uh, to make one uh, one nucleotide seems almost impossible. You know, to have it spontaneously arrive on a planet somewhere, it seems impossible. But to have the uh, a long strand DNA with thousands and thousands of nucleotides, it's he was right. I mean, uh, no, I don't want to say he was right, but he was right to say that I, I don't know, and there's no way we can know how it got here unless it's just you know, the, the universe's greatest coincidence. I have this theory, you know, there's all this DNA. We don't know what it does. And I have a feeling someday, you know, they're going to sequence the genome and then they're going to pull it out and they're going to run it through some processor and it's going to be never going to give you. Yeah. <laughs> totally <Never>. Rickrolled. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That would be like, that would be, you know, that would be like, Whoa, what does this mean? Oh my gosh. The, the it, existence in general would implode if something like that came up. But that's, that's what these, I can't remember the author of that book now. It's going to bug me. Um, but he gets into that too. Uh, it was it icky. David? Rick rolling in our DNA. No, wow. no, just hide, hiding information within the DNA or, or oh, some oh. sort of message. Cause the whole idea is, uh, an advanced species would be able to look at the moon and look at the ratios of like the circumference of the moon to the circumference of the earth and how close the moon is compared to the sun and blah, 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 blah. And would say that's too coincidental. That, you know, someone was here or something, and it's leaving us, uh, I guess, a message for the next step or something like that. It's a fun book. It's a good, um, I would recommend it if you go on vacation somewhere. Um, and the author would probably be upset with me saying that. But I, I just, I I found it an interesting book, but I wouldn't. Uh, Authors appreciate any plug. <laughs> okay. I tell people to buy their books. If, so, I, if uh, I can remember the name of them. <laughs> well, Who Built the Moon is enough. Yeah, yeah. Probably find that. So let me look through here. Uh, so you pose the case that technology and innovation have reshaped humanity just three times in history. And that was surprising to me because it's a very macroscopic view of the big picture. Um, I would argue, and I guess I just only because I never really thought about the, um, 
the four ages until I read your book. But I would argue that it was very, you know, thousands of small steps that brought us to the present day, like Flint tools, then cave art, then discovery of psychedelics. There's a whole, there's a whole branch yeah, of people that I think like, uh-huh, electricity and then aeronautics and then where we are today. But, um, do you care to go into the, the three ages that led up well, to the fourth? Well, yeah. I mean, the 742nd age doesn't sell a lot of copies. I think, uh, that's true. Uh, Although no, in all seriousness, um, no, I mean, I think th- there's nothing magical about the ones I, there's no rightness, you know, to the, to the framework I set up. Mm-hmm. When I look back across history and I say, well, what came along that just really forever changed everything? I, I don't, I don't know how you get away from the first one being language. It's like if we didn't ever develop language, uh, you know, TV would be awful. Uh, <laughs> um, if we didn't ever develop language, Will Durant, the historian, said that's what made us human. It's like, so I think that was a technology. And so you just start thinking like that, like, wow, that's a technology that made every, that's what put us in charge of everything. Cause, cause 10 people could coordinate their activities and take down a mammoth. And all of a sudden we were off to the races. And then I think the second one, it's a little subtle because I, I say it's agriculture, but it really isn't. What happens is agriculture comes along. And because of agriculture, we developed the city, which is a technology. And then the city gave us the division of labor, and the division of labor gave us prosperity. And that's what I really think was the second big thing. We went from we could barely survive. It took all of us hunting and gathering you know, all day to we had these cities that you could do something and I could do something. We'd both be better off. And prosperity is what gave us everything in our modern world. If we didn't have that. You know, and we were all just every day was a struggle to survive. Where would we be? And so I kind of thought that's worthy. Right. And then I thought of the third one was a coincidence, actually, that two technologies happened at the same time. Five thousand years ago, in most places, right at the same time. And that's writing in the wheel. And when those came along, you had what you needed to make a nation state. And, And the reason I found that so compelling is. 5,000 years ago, you had these empires emerge all over the world kind of all at once Uh, in Mesopotamia, Mesoamerica, the Indus, in India, the Po, in China. You had these these places that just all on the same day, as it were, because these two technologies happened. And and people getting together in nations, promulgating laws, building civilization, I thought, wow, that kind of counts. All the things you list, you know, are... I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna knock the move, movable type or electricity or anything like that. Mm-hmm. But um, I kind of think they pale compared to language and prosperity and nations. the The reason I call the book the Fourth Age is because I, I really think AI, even with my let's say um, moderated view of what it's capable of, really can be of that same magnitude and, and the way i base it is off that elon musk quote i just said where we're where we are because we're the smartest thing on the planet and ai effectively makes us smarter it isn't smart but if i hold a tool that has ai in it i'm smarter and if everybody on this planet went to bed tonight and woke up tomorrow with 20 extra iq points that would set us off in a whole different direction mm-hmm. uh, it, it may even be a bigger change than that and and so i think we're dealing with also you know the, the history of our species is we learn something and forget it, learn and forget, learn and forget, learn and forget. The minute we can record everything our, that happens in our lives and the minute that data is used to make better decisions for everybody, the planet gets a collective memory. We, we collectively as a species start learning instead of individually learning things. And that – because you look at the internet. It's 25 years old. 25 years ago this year, the Mosaic browser came out and you – you know, you, you say, what has the internet done? All that is, is two computers can now talk over a common protocol. That's it. That's it. We just make computers talk to each other. They don't have any smarts. They can just communicate. And, you know, you get $25 trillion in wealth. You get a million companies. You transform institutions. You All of that. If, what do we, if you could make everybody smarter, that is boggles my mind to try to imagine 
the unforeseen consequences of that. But 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 they have to be good. You know why I say that? Because if if you don't think they're good, then you have to say ignorance is better. Ignorance is better than knowledge. It would be better if we all went to bed tonight and woke up with 20 fewer IQ points. Somehow that would be better. And I don't believe that. I believe that that knowledge is power. It's a power to make your life better. And and AI is an instantiation of that knowledge that that is accessible to everybody, not just the rich. You know, it's accessible to anybody with a smartphone. They're going to be able to have a, a doctor in there, a lawyer, an architect, everything they everything they want in there. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I think this would be a good piggyback onto my next, uh, I guess it's a question, but my wife and I always talk about, we have a four-year-old and a five-year-old, and uh, she always talks about, you know, what's, what are they going to do at college, college, you know, this, that, and the other thing, and and I seem to think, because what I've, what I've read through, um, you know, read about AI and all that, and technology, and because I believe in the exponential growth, where you know you can't look back thirty years and then predict the next thirty years. You have to you have to look up instead of you know uh, up the the slope that you just came up. And I I say sure we can pretend to plan for our children's future, but we're at such a cusp of technological explosion, especially I mean just look at since two thousand to two thousand eighteen. You know, we went from flip phones to supercomputers in our pockets that that we can plan to make us feel better, but we don't know what life is going to be like in 14 years. I don't think we can predict that. We can guess. I don't agree. Okay. I don't agree. So I, 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 first of all, I don't know that it matters if you can predict it or not. If I went back in time to high school, so I'm 50 years old. So if I went back to 1984 when I was in high school and I knew the whole future, uh, I could have, there's only one thing I could have taken that would be useful today. Can you guess what that is? Latin. (laughs) Typing. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) So, you know, the one thing I didn't take uh, would have been useful. You never would have known that, right? Like, and so it is, none of us learned what we learned in school. Mm -hmm. It's like we we didn't. and, and, and I do know this. The, the university system is a 12th century French invention. Mm-hmm. And it has survived unchanged for 900 years. And you look at the last 900 years and just think what happened in Europe in the last 900 years. You know, the, the Black Death, the Protestant Reformation, the Nazism, World Wars, famines, diseases, plagues revolutions, the overthrow of every monarchy, currency collapse, everything you can imagine. And that institution never even changed. It didn't even blink. And so you can be very confident in 14 years, there's still going to be universities and they're going to be substantially, I think the way they are now. Hmm. Um, I think you can easily look and say, you know, what, what are the attributes of people that are successful in life? And I mean that in a, in a very broad way. Well, they're, they're people who, who like what they do. I think. And so teaching kids how to like find their passion and encouraging them, like try lots of things and figure out, you know, what you're uh, good at. Um, the ability to write uh, is unquestionably, whether that's just compose emails or what, the ability to communicate with others, that is unquestionably useful uh, in, in 10 years or 20 or any view you see. The ability to work with others in ad hoc teams. I can guarantee you in the future, we're going to form more teams and, 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 and all the rest. And, and so I think their basic skills, the, 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 the K through 12 system we have today was created. It's a 19th century Prussian invention mm-hmm. and it was created to make factory workers. And it does a great job at that. It makes homogenous people who can follow instructions and work in factories and they have enough basic knowledge to, you know, they listen for the bell to ring and they do something different and they have an instructor who gives them a performance review and it's all modeled after the factory. Um, I do think you can look at the 21st century and say, what, what is going to be useful there? And, and you don't have to take a nihilistic approach just because the shape of our telephones changed in the last 14 years. <laughs> uh, I think, I think there's a lot of things that are, are, are core to being human. So I would, frankly, though, I, I wouldn't give it any, I wouldn't lose any sleep over it. I mean, I, we have, we have four children and ours are just a little older than yours. And, um, and, and, you know, if, if, if I were to lay awake at night 
figuring out what to teach them. So they'll they'll get into the college of their choice in 20 years. I, I think I'm really shortchanging them yeah. in terms of, of life because life's about finding things you love to do, finding your passion, and uh, I think, and pursuing it. You know, there's a, uh, only a few people who have that luxury in today's world. And luckily it's more than ever before, and it's going to be more. But if, if you're in that position where your children will have a choice, they're not, their, their life isn't, just a struggle to survive because they live in, in a, in a part of the world where there is no prosperity. Mm-hmm. Uh, then, then your, I think your job is to, is to teach them well in a world of choices, how do you make choices? How do you choose? And I don't think you have to understand technology to, to answer that one. Good answer. Um, I think too, as humans, we tend to, we tend to, and it's a good thing, but we, we focus on the negatives and we focus on what can be changed and what can be fixed. But um, you had mentioned something there. I can't remember exactly what it was. And, and I don't know the actual number, but I know over the past 50 years, let's say, the amount of people in poverty in the world has, has dropped by like 50% or some, some large number like that. Uh, and I would say it's largely since 1980, the people in abject poverty is that what it is? have fallen by half, even though the population of the, like the gross number, not the percentage has fallen by half. I uh, will live to see the end of that. I mean, even the UN's most pessimistic predictions say that'll happen shortly, that people who, who live on $2 a day or less, half the world still lives on $3 a day or less, uh, which isn't abject poverty. I mean, believe me, that's, you know, that's, it's a thousand dollars a year. A family of four has four grand a year. Uh, that isn't a lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, the median per capita incomes, 8,000. So, you know, you're, anyway, uh, we'll eliminate abject poverty without a doubt. And, and the goal is to get everybody up to, even if you get to five or $6 a day, it's a, it's a real material. We'll do it because technology increases productivity. Right. I mean, eventually we'll get everybody. Well, wealth is we create wealth in this world because we learn this trick to multiply our productivity. Mm-hmm. I don't work harder than my great grandparents did, but I live a more lavish life than they did. Not because I work harder, but because an hour of my labor yields so much more than an hour of their labor. You know, to people in the developing world right now who are in poverty, um, that's been an intractable problem. There's you know this bottom billion of people that. You just like you're, you ache for them because you you just look around a world of prosperity and say how is it that they're left out, and you know and how can how can you help that situation? But the good news is that technology is going to be the answer, and and technology is a wind at everybody's back. So I think one of the greatest memes that were ever developed was the first world problems, because it it sh- it taught me so much. For the reason that when people complain about superficial things, you can say, do you realize that if you live in a, gosh, you could live in a one bedroom, a 500 square foot apartment and you're, you're living like royalty <laughs> in comparison to the rest of the world. You can, you might complain about, I don't know, waiting at line in line somewhere or not having a good Wi-Fi signal, but you have a machine in your kitchen that keeps your food cold and you have a, another machine where you flip the switch and water comes out of it. <laughs> and you have uh, another machine which takes you up and down. The You know, it it really it just brings everything into light. It really brings everything into perspective. Yeah, you know, people talk about the one percenters, but if you make 30 grand a year, oh, you're yeah. a one percenter on, by, I mean, just, by the world standard. Just comparing it to your grandparents 1%. or my great-grandpa. My yeah. grandfather, who grew up in... Uh, uh, Buffalo, New York, we would hear stories. I'm sorry, I said grandfather, my great-grandfather. He, we would hear stories how they would boil the bones of chicken and beef to get the marrow out because they just had nothing. And and yeah. that is such a foreign concept to the majority. And, and he wasn't, you know, he wasn't that small percentage of people. That, put, that, was, that was what working people did. That was the majority in Buffalo who worked on the rail cars or who worked on the... Um, grain elevators and stuff they didn't have anything and and now the majority the majority have flat screen tvs and air conditioning and and sure there's there's always room for improvement and that's you you have to keep your eye on that because that's that breeds innovation but in the same sense we are 
we're living the Jetsons if you just look around. <laughs> you know, we live closer in time to when the Jetsons was set than when the Jetsons was made. When was it set? So it was made in 62. Okay. Set in 62. Um, set in 2062. Okay. So we're 40, uh, what is it? 44 years away That's funny. from it happening. We're 56 years away from it being made. Wow. Yeah. When you start uh, playing with time like that, it, it messes with your head. The whole idea that um, uh, Tyrannosaurus Rex is closer to us than it was to the first dinosaur or something. Yeah. The brontosaurus. Yeah, yeah. It's, it, it really blows your Cleopatra mind. Cleopatra was closer to us than the construction of the pyramids. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. There's there's a um, just last week we watched me and my wife watched this movie called uh, uh, the man who invented Christmas and it's about Charles Dickens and uh, as we we're watching it he has this flashback of his childhood so I I believe he wrote it maybe in his 30s or 40s so he's he's flashing back say 25 to 30 years and nothing changed right he he was looking at his childhood in comparison to his adulthood and. They were wearing the same things. They were still using candle. There was no changes. And it dawned on me that that it's only a recent phenomena that we have a hard time relating to our very close relatives. My dad grew up in a very different time than I did. And and almost fictitional like it's almost fictitious for me to imagine how my great grandfather grew up. Well that that is true, but I I would I would temper that by saying uh, we still read Shakespeare and that happened 400 years ago. Right. And the only reason you can read Shakespeare today is because all those people are just exactly like us. Sure. The, right? the, the framework, the framework of humanity. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So I guess I was thinking technologically speaking. Right. Uh, I don't, but, I, you know, it was still about relationships and family, intergenerational struggles, money, friendships betrayal like all of these things that are as real that, that haven't that haven't changed but yeah. you're right the the notion of progress is a brand new idea yeah uh it it really happened 250 years ago when we systematized the acquisition of knowledge we made the scientific method and that was kind of when we were off to the races before that if you had gone back if, if, if you were living in 1500 and on a farm and you went back a thousand years in Europe mm -hmm. onto a farm, you may not notice that anything's changed. Right. Yeah, which is fascinating. I mean, heck, you could you could look at early Anglo-Saxon England, right? 900 AD, 800 AD, um, right when the, the kingdoms were starting to, to brew up. And then jump ahead 300 years, which to us, 300 years is is so much, I mean, that's, we're talking the 17, 1600s. Um, but in those days, it, it, they wouldn't be able to tell anything, except maybe the government, the government changed in that time. <laughs> right. It's fascinating, fascinating thing to think about. Um, one last thing, and, and I just want to get your, your thought on this, because I have a hard time wrapping my head around. It's a little, uh, I don't know if there's something metaphysical about it, or maybe there's something very simple that I just don't see. This whole idea of Moore's Law and how technology doubles at a certain rate, no matter what. Uh, and, and I think in your book, you said all the way back to the Stone Ages that you can apply this concept. Well, sort of. Okay. So... Uh, it is a big mystery, by the way. Nobody knows the answer to it. And if you figure it out, you know, call the Nobel Committee. <laughs> they would want to know. Um, so Gordon Moore, you know, who co-founder of Intel 53 years ago. He's still alive, by the way. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. So it's like so much of that history is still very much here. He said, you know, computers have been doubling capability. He put very simply, doubling capability for a few years. It's going to go on for a few more years. And it's been going on ever since then. And then Ray Kurzweil comes along and he says, you know what? You know, it's really interesting. Is It's been going on for 130 years. And what's fascinating about that is that computers have gone through five different technologies. They used to just be mechanical. And then there were relays. 
and then there were tubes, then there were transistors, and then there were microprocessors. So how is it that you could you could completely change the underlying technology, but the abstraction, the power, kept doubling and doubling and doubling and doubling and doubling? And the answer is nobody nobody knows. Hmm. Then other people came along and they said, you know, all technology seems to behave this way. It doesn't double every two years, but every n years, every seven years, every 28 years. Some people came along and said that complexity of life doubles every 74 million years or something along that line. And, and you can work backwards and figure out that life is 6 billion years old, when, uh, which is fascinating because the planet's only 4 billion. And so that gets us back to that original thing. So somehow or another, technology does this doubling thing. So you can either take it with computers, you can take it back 100 years or more, or maybe you can take it back to the beginning of the universe. We don't know how it happens. Um, but it seems to be, I don't know how it happens. I don't even have an idea how it happens. But, um, but what it means, I think, is that there's no limit to progress and technical progress. And I think, therefore, that means that we'll solve all technical problems. A lot of problems aren't technical. Don't get me wrong. Sometimes people are just bad people, right? Like there are a lot of, th in the end, our great, our great challenge is to be better people. Um, but there are these things that are technical problems, disease and poverty and hunger and so many more that um, you'll live to see the end of sooner than later. You know, Jonas Salk made the Salk vaccine. Mm -hmm. uh, he didn't have a computer. He lived at a time of stone knives and bear skins. Jenner, Jenner made a vaccine for, poly, uh, for smallpox in the 1700s. And this is before Louis Pasteur was born. And Louis Pasteur's the guy who came up with germ theory. So we somehow managed to, to use technology to defeat the worst disease there ever has been before we even knew germs existed. So what we're going to be able to do will just pale. I mean, we'll just make all of those pale in comparison. We're, we'll be, the disease, for instance, has one trick up its sleeve. It says... I'm going to wait for a random mutation to occur, and I hope it's better. That's it. That's its entire playbook. Mm -hmm. Like Beginning and end. You got it. What what we can do, you know, we're going to be able to deconstruct it to its core and model it in the computer. And if we don't have the technology to do it today, just wait two years. It may have taken 4,000 years to make that computer on your desk, but just wait two years. It'll be twice as good. Not good enough? Wait two more years. Twice as good. Twice as good. Twice as good. Twice as good. So that's why I'm so optimistic about about the future, but because of that and a simple idea that people are disproportionately good, and that may sound like a wish, but it's 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 an empirical fact that we wouldn't be here today if if more people wanted to destroy than create. Yeah, because it's easier to destroy than create, and yet vast, you know, nobody predicted that when the internet came out, you'd be able to post some problem online, and perfect strangers would take time out of their schedule and write you an answer. Nobody predicted that, um, you know, a great encyclopedia is going to be made by people who toiled, not not just for no money, but in anonymity. Mm -hmm. Nobody predicted the open source movement. Sure. People are going to write source code and give it away. Um, and so it turns out more people are good than bad. And if technology continues to progress and people are disproportionately good, then we'll eventually solve all these problems that, we've had forever well byron i think that brings us full circle because we started off with optimism and we ended with optimism uh i always like to i think of myself as an optimist i do enjoy a good story so uh the james barrett nanobots that does that dissolve every atom on earth to reharness energy that's exciting <laughs> scary to, yeah. to read about but um no i think i think that's a great uh a great recap a great um way to think about technology because you're right you're right uh, if we look at just where we were 250 years ago with disease and suffering and where we, or like we talked about the last uh 40 years with um uh people being pulled out of abject poverty i mean the answer is right there in front of us it's gonna happen things will get better and uh as a guy that likes i love technology i love gadgets that's that's why i'm excited about the future <laughs> i can't wait yeah. i can't wait to see what what they can do next with my vacuum cleaner there you go. <laughs> so folks can find you at byronreese.com. Uh, 
uh, com, B-Y-R-O-N-R-E-E-S-E.com. Uh, do you have a Twitter? I'm Byron Reese everywhere. Okay. Byron Reese Twitter, Byron Reese Facebook, email, everything. All right. Uh, luckily, I got into all of this before any other Byron Reese's could have <laughs> Yeah, rap. so many of them out there. Uh, I thought for sure you were, you were English when your publicist contacted me. It I sure said, sounds like yeah, it, doesn't Yeah, yeah. Callum, when Callum got in touch with me, I said, this, this guy's definitely from, from Great Britain. <laughs> yeah, uh, it, it sounds like Yeah, it, but yeah. Uh, well, my father always told me I was named after a chicken thief, so... <laughs> Well, uh, you know, little independent podcasts like this, we reach, you know, I don't know, 10,000 people per episode. But another thing, another great thing that technology allows us to do, I didn't think I would have a uh, multinational radio show that, that is broadcast over a piece of plastic the size of my wallet, but that's the way it is. Um, and it's folks like you who have all this wonderful information and want to share it with people that, that make little ventures like this actually happen. Well, thank you for having me. Oh, absolutely. Thank you, Byron. Like us on Facebook.com slash WWI Podcast and at WWI Podcast on Twitter. Drop us a line at WaitsWhatIsPodcast at Yahoo.com. Listen to us on iTunes, Stitcher or TuneIn Internet Radio. your listening experience. Now go forth and expand your reality.